It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Live to see it, friends, and welcome to The World Transformed. I'm Phil Bowermaster, and all this week, I've been talking with entrepreneur and futurist Nate Grundeman. How are you doing, Nate? Doing really well, Phil. Well, it's great to have you back for a Friday show. You know, we usually kind of cut loose a little bit on Friday. We're going to geek out here at the end, but I thought before then, as promised on Wednesday, we were going to talk about the future of everything. So, I hope you're ready. I'm ready. Got your futurist shoes on, and let's let's start... Uh, Pick a topic. What what futurist thing would you like to talk about first? Let's try aliens. Aliens? You know, the, the, the great thing about aliens is they're not even necessarily futuristic, of course. As you know, they built the pyramids, so they've been around here for quite some time. And uh, ancient structures on Mars even long, long before <laughs> that. We, we did a show just a few weeks ago talking about the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University has put out a report... And people who've been on the show before, Andrew Samberg was one of the contributors to it, and K. Eric Drexler was one of the contributors to it, talking about the fact that it's perfectly plausible that we're alone in the universe. They've run the numbers and they've done the math, and they're not saying there's no aliens, but they're saying there could be no aliens. And we contrasted that with a story that said, there's enough good evidence now on the UFO side that (laughs) we should really be seriously scientifically investigating UFO. So, right, I mean, the, the truth is out there, and it lies somewhere between those two positions, right? That there's probably, there's no good reason to believe there's aliens, and even the, like, crazy alien theories, exactly. right, have enough evidence behind them that they can be scientifically exactly. investigated. So, where do you where do you stand on the whole Where alien? do I stand? Well, you know, it's actually really interesting. I was in a cab ride the other day. And uh, my cat, you know, my Uber driver was talking that she had an alien encounter. Oh, and I think, I think there are all now these, we're getting somewhere. yeah, I know. I think there are all these like YouTube videos going around. I've never seen one, but apparently they're super popular talking about how, you know, there are lizard people and alien encounters happen all the time. So apparently this is, you know, in, in common media now, it's, it's the zeitgeist uh, to have this conversation and, and people really believing they have alien encounters. Now, I don't know, you know, I think reality is subjective and, um, I've never had an alien encounter, so who am I to say? But uh, yeah, it's it's also really interesting seeing you know the the news reports about you know these fighter pilots having these weird encounters with objects that they don't understand. So it's interesting when you hear it from the Navy or the Air Force, exactly. or when it's a major astronomer who has seen something that's exactly. weird, or an astronaut. When you when you hear it from some random person you meet, you know, if your Uber driver tells you there's aliens everywhere, <laughs> that's one thing, right? That is one thing. And of course, Lord knows they encounter enough people that they, you know, <laughs> they've, they've seen some stuff. But but when you hear it from a, a presumably authoritative source, it takes on a whole different exactly. feel to it Exactly. at that point. And one of the things that I said to Stephen last time we talked about this 
is the fact that there might be weird visual phenomena occurring in the sky is still a big leap to there are extraterrestrial civilizations. Exactly. I think we're attributing a a story that we like to tell ourselves to experiences that we can't describe. And I think that that might be a similar story to, you know, some of the old stories that uh, cultures used to tell about, you know, gods and the universe and why things happen the way they did. Um, It's, it's just, it's, it's an interesting story telling, you know, phenomenon. And, um, yeah, I think there's, there's something almost mythological about aliens that that it taps into that part of our whole perception of exactly of experience of human experience of reality. Exactly. And, and I just want to say, although I'm skeptical about UFOs, I remain skeptical about UFOs in in, in the face of (laughs) authoritative evidence, uh, not skeptical that people are seeing something. I think they must be seeing something. I agree. Those videos are showing something. And there's plenty out there that we don't understand. Yeah. Uh, that it proves that we're not alone in the universe, sadly, I don't think it does. Exactly. However, I also have a close friend who is completely convinced that there are aliens all around us. And he's not a crazy person, but there's a lot of different ways of looking at this stuff. Definitely. I don't think there's aliens all around us. I I think it would be awesome if mm-hmm. if I met an alien. I would I would <laughs> I, I think anyway, it would be pretty if, cool. if they didn't eat my brains or something. You know if they if they just wanted to hang. But but we gotta we gotta we got a ways to go. I'm I'm hopeful that the near future we will discover something like Tabby's Star, which we talked about uh, quite a bit on the show. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's basically a a star that goes it gets dimmer and then it gets brighter. Ah uh, yes. You've heard of this, right? And so what was causing that to happen? One possible theory was it's being orbited by some huge structure. Alien superstructure. Yeah, right. they're, they're they're building a structure around it. And we've had a few other things happen along the same lines. We had that weird comet come into and out of our solar system that behaved in a way that wasn't the way a comet should. Exactly. We're we're able to see the universe a lot better than we were in years gone by. So I'm hoping that we're going to actually see something in the near future that confirms that there are aliens. Unless they're like really hostile, scary aliens. In which case, I'm hoping that we don't find out about them. And more importantly, <laughs> that they don't find out about us. That's Well, you know, to that point, you know, I think the reason why the Fermi Paradox is, you know, the Fermi Paradox being that we haven't seen extraterrestri- evidence of extraterrestrial life yet. Um, you know, it's it. It could all come to my my hypothesis that it all could come down to just the fragility of complex systems. So you know, we are uh, we are a complex species. Um, you know, and as we sort of scale up and as we, as the world becomes ever more complicated and interconnected, especially with you know globalism and all those things, um, that eventually you know we could wipe ourselves out. You know, we've already seen that capability, um, or just you know the Systems collapse ultimately. Yes, and complex systems collapse. And so, at least to me, you know, this is sort of the uh, the apocalyptic mind you're running. But and we'll get to, to the me, robot apocalypse <laughs> in just a moment. So yeah. robot apocalypse, I'm on it. Keep um, going with that. But yeah, I think it's um, the most, at least the most logical uh, hypothesis to me for answering the Fermi paradox is just the um, the complexity of complex or the. the Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Right? I love that poem. Yeah. So, if that's the case, well, let me give you. A, let me let me lay one slightly more hopeful one on you, <laughs> please. Which, which which also accounts for the Fermi paradox, and it goes to something we were talking about on the Wednesday show, which is just that maybe as civilizations get more and more advanced, their virtual realities become more and more compelling, and ultimately they're not just virtual realities; they're creating 
essentially real realities moving into essentially other universes and the reason we've never seen anybody is because they're all just off in their own spaces that they've created there there's no reason to deal with macro space because they're dealing with these tiny little micro spaces and if that one sounds creepy and scary to you it's like well that's better than they wiped themselves out exactly you know so um, and maybe we'll be the ones who actually get in spaceships and fly around and find all these other oh, I hope so. aliens I mean, the, with their you know, headsets on. Elon Musk and, and you know, diversifying the planets we live on, like those are all very hopeful realities and, and inspiring to me. Absolutely. Okay. So we were hopeful for a moment. Now let's get right back into it with the, the robot apocalypse. Uh, is, is this something you worry about? Are you losing sleep over this? What, tell, tell me where you are with this, Nate. You know, I know there are lots of people on both sides of the aisle here. Uh, I know there are the... You know, the pessimists and the optimists, people talking about AI and robots being, you know, world enders or just helping humans. And I think the, you know, the, the right answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, it's definitely fun to think about, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator. Um, you know, but like that, that is a future that we could see ourselves. That is a story we can tell ourselves. Right. Um, but, you know, it might, it might look more like Skynet. Um, you know, Skynet sort of being that, that AI that has control over military systems and can make decisions on, you know, who lives, who dies, those sorts of things. Um, you know, I think Skynet is a much more possible future than a Terminator, you know, a Terminator robot. Right. And of course they're in the same story. So they, exactly. they, they exist in the same universe. It's interesting. Skynet is kind of like the, well, you don't learn too much about it, but I presume Skynet is kind of like the intelligence in the Matrix, right? That's behind behind that world. That there was this artificial intelligence that rose up and it decided I'm in charge now. And, yeah. and human beings are just one of the many things that I have to deal with. Absolutely. <laughs> so here's, here's my solution to, to what happens with human beings. If that is to occur, it doesn't have to be an apocalypse. It right? doesn't. The thing is, we could have a completely benign artificial intelligence that puts us in a happy place, right? Totally. In fact, that was one of the one of the stories in the Matrix, right? Was they start out trying to make you happy, but you people are you're too hard to make happy. So yeah. we had to give you a, a a partially miserable world. Now that would be obviously better than being wiped out, but maybe not as good as moving forward in in evolution. So the best case scenario, obviously, is one where we're working cooperatively with our AIs. That, Absolutely. You know, they're not necessarily our slaves, but we're not exactly. necessarily their minions either. That, exactly. that, that maybe somehow we form a partnership, a collaboration with them. And, right. And nobody gets wiped out. Right. And I don't think, you know, the apocalypse and, uh, you know, utopia are mutually exclusive either. You know, I think, I think humans, robots could have some control and help us make certain decisions. They already do. You know, big data, like, helping us make decisions with where to allocate resources and that kind of thing. Like that's AI being directly helpful today. Um, and I even think maybe AI is sort of like a safeguard. Like, you know, if a president wants to push the big red button and launch a nuke, you know, maybe an AI could do some analysis and it's like, is, is this a good idea? Like, are we really under immediate threat? Like maybe they could actually make us safer. You know, that's actually what happened in real life Mm -hmm. in the, was it, 1960s or early 70s, a fairly low-level functionary somewhere in the architecture of nuclear war and the Soviet Union got the order. The order shouldn't have been given, but it was given, and it was a legitimate order, and he was supposed to push the button, and he didn't do it. I can't think of the guy's name. We've talked about him on the show several times, but basically he is the man who saved the world. 
and his birthday should be a holiday, right? I mean, he's he's the greatest guy ever. Wow. In in a lot of ways, but the fact that the fact that the the system was complex enough that it had to go through enough filters, and there was one guy who said, "No, nah, I don't think so. I'm not hitting. Right. This, I'm not hitting this button and 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 causing World War Three." We have that capacity. Yeah. Hopefully, we can create systems that have that capacity exactly. too, right? And but, and when you think of you know a hierarchical system where one person can has the freedom of choice to make some decision like that, right? Uh, like you know pushing the big red button. Um, you know I worry that or, or it's hopeful that an AI maybe could help us make those decisions or help it make har- make it harder or more difficult to make those decisions. Right. Absolutely. Well, that would be that would be good. Also, just I think there are possible combinations of us interrelating with AI that we've never thought about before because it always Absolutely. tends to go to Absolutely. The know, stories we've already told ourselves. That's right. right. There are slaves or we're their slaves exactly. or we're at war with them. I, I doubt a war would go much of anywhere. Either we're still on top and we wipe them out or they get on top and they wipe us. It's very asymmetrical. Very. And again, it, it, stories are only interesting when they're on the, the poles. One one story that dealt with the asymmetry, I thought, in a really wonderful way was, did you see the movie Her? I didn't, actually. Oh, okay. So, so I'm going to spoil it for you now. But... <laughs> Uh, Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with an operating system. We've talked about it a number of times on the show. It's a really cool love story between a human and an AI. And what happens is the AIs just, they quickly outgrow us, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, and you can have this wonderful transcendental experience of love with this other being who suddenly just has no use for you anymore. And I think something like that could happen too. Yeah, maybe not necessarily in interpersonal relationships, although that's a possibility. Yeah. But just kind of in who we are to them and who they are to us. Yeah, where the end of the movie is, on the one hand, it's kind of a there's a hopeful note in that we're glad this happened to us. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there's just kind of devastation that yeah. that this hole that they leave in our lives when they go, look, we got to go do our own thing now. You, you know, it, kindergarten was great and all, but right. we're, we're PhDs now. So right. enjoy your universe. And, and they're, and, and they're done with us. Those kinds of possibilities I think are real and untapped and unexplored. And we probably need to spend more time thinking about that. Right. Yeah. I think it's all going to be in the nuance. Right? Yeah. It's all, whatever the rea- the reality that comes to be, um, is so dependent on you know what we need, what we're looking for, how we program them, and so if we're like, you know, we need them to be dependent on us, or we for you know love, as in the case of her, or you know making big decisions, whatever it be, um, you know, I think it's it's all up to what we need them to be, and you know, and of course that's well before the singularity. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, up until they decide what exactly. they need to be, and and ultimately if they decide what we need to be. They make good decisions along along those lines. Okay, so I've got designer babies here on the list of possible topics. Absolutely. So some thoughts on that. You know, I'm I'm only a 22 year old. I'm not an ethicist. Um, but again, going back to complex systems, you know, I think there's I think there's a lot of risk when we look at you know CRISPR and designer babies, and not just from the ethics of you know will we be one homogenous super race, but you know what what kind of unintended consequences are we going to see when we start playing with genetic code? Right. Well, hopefully, designer babies will at least overcome the idiocracy effect, right? This is this is one of my, 
my hopes for that is uh, you're familiar with the movie Idiocracy? I'm not. Oh, well, I'm going to I'm going to help you out with we're going <laughs> to do a, movie a, list. a weekly movie session or something like that. Get you caught up. But in the movie Idiocracy, a guy gets transported forward into the future and he's now the smartest man on earth because what's happened on earth while he was gone and this is actually a real demographic trend is that the most intelligent people have the fewest kids and regular intelligence people have a moderate number of kids but the dumb people have lots of kids and this occurs over generation over generation over generation and suddenly you've got a world where people are visibly less smart, you know, they've, and because this guy was pretty average, actually maybe on the low side of average in the 20th century or 21st century. And now he's the smartest guy in the world. And it's not saying much. Okay. (laughs) To say he's the smartest guy in the world. So that's a real effect. How do we counteract that? Well, one of the ways I've said that is if we can actually boost intelligence, right. And not even just in vitro, but if we can boost intelligence for ourselves, right? right. Once, once we're up and running, then that that will help counter that effect. Right. I just I, I'm I'm of the opinion that messing with intelligence. Let's say let's let's say the we identify the intelligence gene being this, or you know more likely it's a whole thousands of genes a combination. Yeah. Um, what happens when you start playing with those? You know, because those genes also affect other things, and I'm I'm worried about the the implication of messing with that it's such a complex system that i don't believe understanding the parts could ever lead you to understand the whole hmm interesting yeah well it you have to wonder if there would be just a quick is there anything you could just do genetically to make a more intelligent person like is there's not just one gene right there's going to be to your point a whole complex of things that have to be impacted but i think i think we're able to sort of you know think through this stuff and today we can play with one gene you know we say oh it's activated deactivated um but i think most of you know what we want to change about ourselves what be it disease intelligence um you know looks i i think that those things are probably way too complicated for us to comprehend and if we try to meddle I think there might be some some things that we're not so happy about. There will definitely be unintended consequences. There will definitely be side effects that we're, we're not looking for. One of the things Ray Kurzweil talks about is let's not get so excited about designer babies, mm-hmm. but he's very excited about designer baby boomers, right? It's like take, taking adults and even older adults and people who are in a position to make these decisions, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't have the ethical mm-hmm. concerns yeah. about you do, you know, hey, I want, I want my child to have gills, yes. right? You know, I mean, <laughs> those, those, kinds of, those kinds of things are very problematic for the kid who then comes out and says, I didn't, want I didn't really want gills, thanks. <laughs> um, but an adult, you know, particularly adults where we've got, you know, mortality staring us down. We're looking at potentially getting cancer. We're looking at all these different things that can happen to us. Sure. You, you want to mess with my genes a little bit? Okay. I'm, I'll, I know that there might be unintended right. consequences, but I'll assume the risk of that. And once things have been established through adults modifying their genes, then maybe if something is really firmly established or once it's in the germline, I suppose, yeah. um, then you can start uh, producing yeah. kids. But, that, that have, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, what happens when you do start having kids? Like, again, ethical, that's ethical true. issues. Like, it's true. It's true. That, I guess, I guess you know, today you don't really have a choice whether or not you come to this world either. So, that, Well, that's right. Yeah. Uh, nobody has ever exactly. had a vote in that. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or got to pick their parents. Yeah. Uh, you know, or their genes. So. Yeah. Or any of it. Socioeconomic status. Any, yeah. any of that stuff. However, I have to say that 
if you look at things like the piercing community and tattooing and things like that. Yeah, the biohackers. People are going to be doing stuff. It's going to be really interesting. Gills, forget it. You know, dorsal, big dorsal fans. This is the one yeah. Stephen and I talk about. What happens when, see, a few years down the road, okay, when you got a kid in high school and all the other kids have a dorsal fin, right? Are you going to let your kid have a dorsal fin? This is the question. These are the kinds of issues you're going to... You're going to be dealing. It's not with the it. iPad anymore. It's a dorsal fin. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll say no. And if Phil Bowermaster was still alive, he'd tell you that that's just not a good idea to have a dorsal fin. But uh, you can blame me if you want to. Totally. <laughs> uh, when you when you tell them when you tell them they can't. Okay, so I think you know that that's a that's a fun one. I I, I think it's true that we will probably encounter more and bigger problems with that than we're anticipating. But I do look forward to. Whether it's uh, whether it's genetic or whether it's done through nanotechnology, I look forward to things like being able to stand or water for an hour at a time, or you know, I look forward to personally running a four minute mile. I think that kind of stuff would be that would be excellent. That would be that would be pretty awesome. In fact, I might do that after we get done recording here. Just jump yeah. outside, see how close I can get to that. Okay, so I got one more topic, and this actually takes us back to the t- to the subject of housing. We didn't talk about this on our on our show on Wednesday. But you added seasteading to the list of topics that you'd like to get into. We've talked about seasteading in the past. Um, t- tell us what you, first. G- give us a quick idea what that is for those sure. who haven't heard the term before, and where do you think it's going? Sure. So I, I so basically seasteading is the idea that you know there's a new frontier on the ocean, and governments have a monopoly on all the land-based society. Um, and seasteading is, is an alternative, um, and that's what's really hopeful and inspiring to me. It's this idea that people can go out on the seas and try something new, where governments won't necessarily tell them what to do. And this isn't necessarily, you know, it, it sort of gets this libertarian rep. Um, but really, I see it as, as this movement for everyone, where anyone can go out, and if they feel like they're at a disadvantage today, or they feel like they're, you know, it's an unjust society, they can go out and say, you know what, I want to start my own. And that's that's a really hopeful reality, you know. Right now, especially with the political climates and, and all the bi, you know bipartisan stuff, like, you know, I, I just want people to, to work together again. Yeah. Well, I, first off, a libertarian would tell you that they believe that their stuff is for everybody too. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't like those labels. Yeah. I, I I I'm with you 100. percent I'm not big on the labels either. So a seastead is a self or self determining community. At sea, basically. Exactly. Built on a boat or a platform or a, you know, exactly. an oil rig or whatever you can find out there. To uh, and, and we've seen interesting concepts for these modular units where the boats exactly. can attach or disattach from each other. But the idea is you're outside of any national boundaries. Yes. You're on your own at yes. sea. And therefore, it's an opportunity to start fresh. You exactly. Can, you can define society exactly the way... You want to define it. So exactly, and you spoke about you know modular systems like that's the real power of seasteading. It's it's the idea of vote with your house. Yeah, and you know, we're talking about housing. Um, you know, if you don't like the way that you know this, the the seastead is being run, you leave. You you know sail over to the next one that has you know laws and, and rules and a society that you like better. Right. Um, and so that's that's what I see as really powerful. It's it's sort of this entrepreneurial spirit with government. Um, you know, today I think we had we had this great experiment, this grand experiment with the United States. Um, but it's it's inspiring to think that there's there's a there could be another one. You know, a thousand seasteads 
out there um, could mean that we learn a lot more about the best ways to govern and the, the most just societies. Well, we know that in business, competition definitely helps drive new ideas, helps drive innovation, helps exactly. you get to, to new, new and better things. And competition has existed in the geopolitical realm between nation states. Mm-hmm. We had the Cold War, communism versus capitalism, and and we've had and we've before that we've we've seen feudalism exactly. versus exactly. I mean, different systems have gotten to compete against each other, but it's hard. It's hard to roll out a new system mm-hmm. at the nation state level. And once right. something's established, you pretty much need to keep it in place. You're talking about right. thousands and then millions of lives, right. billions now living in living in nation states. So how do you innovate systems of government? Well, one way to do it is to get off the nation state model and work with something smaller. Exactly. Now, what works for a seastead might not reverse engineer back to a, a nation state, but maybe it would, or maybe the nation states start to break into something more seastead like in the, in the long term. You know, we had city states before <laughs> we had nation states. That's exactly right. Which were, which were smaller, Smaller units that were governed in a in a very different way. Mm-hmm. They they grew up and became became nation states. Those became empire or became empires, yeah. and then those broke off into nations. Exactly. So there's been a lot of different models, but it's taken a very long time. Mm-hmm. With a seastead, you can try a lot of different things in a fairly short period of time. Right? That's exactly right. Um, and and you were mentioning those city states. You know, those city states were much less fragile than the big you know honking you know nation states that we have today. Um, and that's, that's really where I, I sort of see everything going, um, eventually, right? The big, the empires always fall, right? Yeah. There, there's no question about that. It's just, what do they break up into? Right. Smaller units. Those smaller units are more robust. They, they can exist for longer. Um, if one goes under the rest don't, you know, there's, there's beauty sort of in that, that self-selection. Absolutely. Well, I love the, I love the image of the, of the seastead. We're going to, I think next year we're going out to Lake Powell and we're going to spend a week on a houseboat. So I feel like this is my my first opportunity, my preparatory step for seasteading. We'll see how, if, if that one works, then I'm ready to try something bigger in the future. Okay, Nate, it's Friday. We're going to geek out. And as we mentioned on, I believe, the Monday show, you grew up in New Zealand. I did indeed. Essentially on the set of... Hercules, the Legendary Journeys, and Xena, Warrior Princess. Literally on the set. So do you have a wacky story to uh, to share that, that might be some good Hollywood dirt or just anything? <laughs> fun, fun experience you had uh, as a kid growing up uh, involved in those TV shows. Absolutely. So I was born in New Zealand right when my parents were you know producing and writing Hercules and Xena. Um, and at one point they needed a, um, they needed a baby Hercules for one of the Universal attractions, uh, the Universal Studios attractions. Right. They had this whole, you know, theme park for Hercules. Okay, yeah. Uh, and so I was baby Hercules. Oh, my God. Uh, yes, and that was, that. you know, that's my party story. Um, <laughs> so was, what, they it, took your picture, or what, how, how were you baby Hercules? What did you do? You know, I don't think I've ever seen the tape. It's it, somewhere. Um, but I was, you know, they everyone used to make these jokes, like, Hercules is so pudgy, you know, <laughs> Oh, so it was a scene. They shot a scene of Baby Hercules. Exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, yeah, so was I was... It, it was in, it, not in the series, though. It was only at the theme park. I, I believe it was only at the theme parks, but, again, I could be mistaken. Oh, I was, I'm going to have baby. to go back and re-watch Hercules and see if we ever have a flashback to Baby Hercules. If yeah, so, baby that's Nate you. As, yes. Oh. Baby Nate as Baby Hercules. 
I, I just I feel like we have to go back and redo this whole week because that should have been the first thing I said. That should have I, been my introduction. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Ladies and gentlemen, we have baby Hercules with us all week. Um, that's amazing. It, it is a fun. It is a fun story. Baby Hercules. So that's cool that you were literally a part of it, right? I mean. I mean, I was too young to really contribute in any way other than just lay there and yeah. maybe cry a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, I, I, you know, it's a fond memory looking back at New Zealand and all the times there. Um, but yes, I, I was too young to really remember. And, you know, you're, you said you were looking for Hollywood dirt, you know, yeah, well, there you <laughs> too go. young for that. Yeah, but, you know, it's kind of on yourself anyway. This is the best way to do it. You learned, you got good instincts. Obviously, your parents raised you well where, that's, where that kind of stuff is concerned. That they did. How old were you when you, when you moved to the U.S.? Moved back when I was four. Oh, okay. All right. So you, were you born in New Zealand? Or? Born in New Zealand. Oh, okay. Uh, I had the accent and everything. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, as soon as I got back here, you know, I was afraid of being different. And so in preschool, I, within two weeks of getting here, I had, I had an American accent. And it's interesting how that stuff works. When I was living in Malaysia, my oldest was seven and then eight years old. And she was attending a British school and she mm. was picking up a, an Australian accent because most of the kids there were Australian, but it immediately disappeared as soon as uh, as soon as we got back yeah. to the U.S. It's kids are very very adaptable, very that, adaptable that kind it's, of stuff. It's amazing. Concerned. All right, well, Nate, I think we've reached the end of our the end of our week. I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been having you with us on the show, and I hope you'll come back and join us again sometime. Maybe when 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 Stephen can make it too. Likewise, Phil. It's been great to be here, and uh, thanks so much. All right, well, we will be back next week with three brand new shows. Thank you all for being with us. Thanks once again to our special guest all week, Nate Grundeman. And until next time, live to see it. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.